podcast where we explain bands. I'm Olivia Ladd, a music journalist in Nashville. The premise of this podcast is I pick a cult band and find a friend or artist in the Nashville music scene to sit down and talk about the history all the way to the modern day influences of that band. Some update for our subscribers and listeners. Bandsplainer is now part of the We Own This Town network based out of Nashville. You can also now find episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. You can find new episodes on weownthistown.net or bandsplainer.show. And be sure to follow Bandsplainer on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Bandsplainer, the podcast where we explain bands. I'm Olivia Ladd, and today we are talking about the UK band Squeeze with Charlie Zillion, who you can go ahead and introduce yourself as a writer around town. Um, hi, I'm Charlie Zillion. Um, I am a writer around town, uh, <laughs> I guess most prominently for the Nashville scene, um, also sometimes Rolling Stone, and before that, um, Seattle Times out west for a number of years. Uh, moved here in January. So far, so good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's like part of the scene now. Um, we met because we both uh, have freelance for Nashville Scene, doing like review and feature stuff. So cool connection there. And Charlie um, had reached out to me about being on the podcast and was one of the only people who, like, so instantly gave an answer to what band they wanted to do. Because usually I, like, send a list of, like, 50 bands I have and people are like, oh, I could do this one or maybe this one. And uh, he was like, squeeze. Like, that's the band I know the most about, like, more than anything else has, like, reoccurred throughout my life. And then we met and talked about it and I heard some, like, amazing stories about it and now... Now, I didn't know too much about Squeeze, and after, like, the past couple weeks sitting down researching and listening to their music and hearing Charlie's kind of perspective on it, I'm, like, a huge fan, and I'm really excited to talk about them today. So, the basic introduction is that they're a UK pop band that kind of defined a corner of that market sound. Um, They formed in 1974, and have kind of had many incarnations throughout the years, which we'll talk about, but they're technically still around today, the the core duo, but their peak years were to about the early 80s. So you can probably discuss their formation a bit too. The main two dudes are Chris Difford and Glenn Tilbrook. So Chris Difford, like, was this teenager in South London in a small town, And he saw Pete Townsend on TV and was, like, really into the idea of, like, being a rock star. So he put up this ad in a candy store window that was, like, he lied. He was, like, I have a record deal. I have a band. Like, I need a guitarist. Just to see, like, who would reach out. And Glenn Tilbrook and his, like, girlfriend at the time were walking down the street, see the ad. She encourages him to reach out. And... The, they met and, like, within a year had written, like, 50 songs or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's just about as I know it. Um, I mean, I feel like uh, Squeeze, for all intents and purposes, began with the second album, Cool for Cats, which I guess we'll get to. But the yeah. story of the first one, UK Squeeze, is kind of... Uh, kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. It's... Um, 
it's a, a, a sort of classic tale of a record label meddling, but not. Which is kind of diesel. funny because I feel like with well, Pulp and Black Flag, like they like you know like both had stuff like that. So past episodes we talked about that. So basically, they're named after Squeeze by the Velvet Underground, which I think is so awesome. Velvet Underground is like my like favorite band other than Can. So they put out Squeeze in 1973, VU did, and, like, it was not well-received. Like, people still to this day, like, don't necessarily love that record. And I get it because, like, compared to, like, their self-titled or, like, White Heat, all that kind of stuff, maybe it's not up to par, but I still think it's a really good record. Like, there's some, like, good stuff on there. Anyway, so they, like, named their band after this VU record that came out a year before, And John Cale discovers them because of this reason. And so in 1977, a few years later, they, like, record this EP. And they've written all these songs. And they're connected with John Cale. He says he's going to produce it. He meets with them to record their first EP a year later, their first record. And John Cale, like, didn't like the songs they had written. Like, he, like, went up to Chris and he was like dude like the exact quote was you've got to stop writing love songs he was like we like imagine yourself like outside of that and write about things you don't know or like things that you're imagining a scenario of and quit writing these little like love songs or whatever so it's kind of funny but they put out their first EP in 77 that he produced called Packet of Three and then they put out a self-titled first album in 1978 And this had their first two big singles, which are Take Me, I'm Yours and Bang Bang. And ironically enough, even though Kale is kind of how they got their start, um, and I love John Kale's production on other stuff, even up to his stuff with like Brian Eno in the 90s, you know, huge fan. He didn't produce either of the singles because the record label didn't think they were commercial enough, which is, you know, of course, ironic, um, considering he's literally in the Velvet Underground and these are two, like, teenage dudes in London. Or, I guess, <laughs> early 20s at that point. That's yeah. really funny. I Maybe you know more than me. I'm not even sure there's anything <laughs> more to the story of how uh, Kale connected with Differed and Tilbrick initially. I mean, it's not like there was like a Google or yeah, um, Velvet Underground like, song title. Yeah, in the documentary, it said something about maybe Lou Reed was involved, but I, they didn't elaborate much. So that's all I know, too. Um, what was the documentary? So the documentary is called Take Me, I'm Yours, which is a BBC kind of TV documentary. Oh. So it's only like 50 minutes. So I feel like I got pretty basic oh, information cool. from that. Cool. But if you're listening to the podcast, you should totally watch it because I did learn a lot. Kind of got like a visual aspect for kind of that aesthetic because I feel like I know a lot about music. Specifically, I always say like the year 1977 to early 80s is like all my favorite music. I've said that in like other podcasts, but I feel like I got like an idea kind of for the aesthetic of the UK during that time that New Wave and all this stuff was happening through that documentary. So that's kind of interesting. Just yeah. a stray observation, just or just a funny parallel um, from what you were talking about that uh, that Velvet Underground album Squeeze. Being sort of like not one uh, beloved by the fan base or even even the band, but as, in hindsight, but as a diehard, you can see the value in it, or you can oh, like, yeah, for sure. Um, 
yeah, and I guess that's kind of how I feel about some of the records that we're going to talk about yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I love that because you can always, the people that work with, like Brian Eno with Devo and stuff, the people that work with these bands in the beginning, you can definitely see a parallel like within the fan base or within like the history. And that's definitely here with VU. I totally agree with that because I feel like with the, specifically the album Squeeze, Velvet Underground was a band I was like definitely into early college and then like as I like wrote anniversary pieces or learned more about them and did like, you know, deep dive research, I like found that record again and was like, oh, there is, you you know, you do see the value there. It is important, etc. And that is kind of Squeeze, like how we were talking about how they have these different incarnations, there's maybe, like, kind of weird dynamics in the later stuff, but then you, like, learn more about them, and you hear it, and that's kind of how I was with, like, their 2010 record stuff. I was like, okay, like, the sound is still there, you know, from the beginning. Anyway, so, when they originally started this band, like, when they did their first, uh, record, Chris said that his three biggest influences were the Kinks, Lula Reed, and Glenn Miller, and I feel like that kind of comes back specifically through Jules Holland's, like, piano playing, you kind of get that, like, Glenn Miller sound and like, kind of the later records. I feel like that's just something maybe I observed. Just you get that kind of, like, classic sound. But they still kind of sound... There's not one band I could, like, compare them to, which is what I love about Squeeze. Mm-hmm. So when they put out the self-titled record in 1978, it was called Squeeze. And there was another band in the U.S. called Tight Squeeze, There was some kind of copyright, lawsuit, whatever issue. They had to go by UK Squeeze and name the record UK Squeeze when they were selling it in the UK or Australia or the US, whatever. So that record is still known as like UK Squeeze. And then eventually, I guess the next year, they were able to release under Just Squeeze. They outlived that other band or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Apparently they weren't. That other band wasn't a big deal, even though they made a big legal fuss. Um, And Squeeze is still around and they're not, so... That's sad. So 1979, they put out Cool for Cats. And this is, this was originally what I thought was my favorite Squeeze record. But the more I listened, I found another one I like a bit better. But this is the first one I heard, I think, just because I had, like, friends that were, when I first got into, like, XTC and Public Image Limited and stuff like that, this record kind of came up in my, like, intro to New Wave kind of level of life, whatever, when I was in college. Yeah, I don't know. Let's talk about Cool for Cats. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, like, my personal connection to it or the record itself? Or um, where do you want to I begin? guess both. Like, what this record is really interesting yeah. because it's really kitschy. Like, it's really, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot to unpack here. And I think that there's this direct influence because Chris Difford said that when he was, like, a kid, he would watch all these British, like, kitchen sink dramas, Mm -hmm. so where you have, like, a big issue, and it's, like, resolved within 30 minutes or an hour, Mm -hmm. so it's a clear, like, beginning, middle, and end, Mm -hmm. and that's, like, what all these songs are. Sort of, like, the beginning of, like, the quintessential, like, Difford Tilbrook story song. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, like, a lot of them are self-contained little vignettes, and... I mean, it's like I guess it's the first, uh, the first example of what kind of became a trademark. Yeah, for sure, for and them. that's like this record more than their first two because Kale's influence was so strong mm-hmm. there, which is interesting on its yeah. own. But Cool for Cats really is kind of like the seminal, like record for what became their sound and their trademark. Yeah, it's them stepping out for the first time, um, and uh, yeah, and I, I feel like I mean maybe. 
almost half, like a third of the songs were singles. Yeah, which is really interesting. And that is like people like music journalists have said that like the specific squeeze sound is that it's Glenn and Chris singing together and it's Glenn singing Chris's lyrics and Chris is singing one octave lower. And that's kind of their whole like thing. And then they sing these like kitchen sink drama songs like quote unquote and that's like kind of their thing and you listen to cool for cats and like it's it's almost funny like some of the songs are like hilarious and like really out there but they're they kind of like are these really interesting pop songs that don't sound like any other pop music coming out at that time because they're not quite harmonizing they're just like singing together creating this really unique voice mm-hmm. like voice and like the literary sense too yeah it's like they make you laugh but like they'll also hit you where it hurts too for sure which is kind of my favorite kind of music yeah I feel like same. like yeah like even in like folk and all that kind of stuff that i listen to it's like stuff that's like clever and then you're like oh wow that's true like Wow, and we can <laughs> you know? get to this, but they're also like a crash course in like British working class slang, for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's really interesting because they did kind of bring that to maybe not the mainstream, but at least the surface level of like music, especially for like U.S. fans. Mm-hmm. And then you get Britpop, where that's like reinforced totally. two decades later, though. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of funny to see that. Yeah, you might find some parallels between this and your uh, pulp episode. Yeah, I, f- yeah, I feel it. like a bit, but I feel like this band, Pulp, I love their like first three records just because they're so like weird, like yeah. and awesome. But like this, like they really were figuring out their sound way earlier on, and I think that's interesting because we're gonna talk about it. But they kind of have three main, I guess, like eras. Mm-hmm. So it's like 1978 to 1981 is when they put out their like first stuff. Then they have like their solo breakup years, and then they have like the reunion years, which still has some really good stuff in it. But I think like the biggest like defining era is like the the first one and they really did have this like specific sound knew what they were doing didn't care what other people thought and like we're just doing it you know so cool for cats is really interesting and i feel like that's the first record that was the first record i heard of them and like never thought about them again until we were going to do this podcast so i feel like that's a good place to start it's like super digestible because it is very poppy Mm -hmm. without being like too too deviant from Mm -hmm. that sound yeah yeah, I mean, I was going to start talking about standout songs on that record, but I feel like I could have something to say on all of them. But, I mean, I guess, what, what were your favorites offhand? Oh, man. Um, I feel like I have to look. Yeah. And this also, it should be noted that, like, so later in the episode, we'll talk about some of their later releases, as with many bands that have been around for decades, or re-releases of other songs where they're re-recording or, like, kind of have an anthology thing. And Cool for Cats, like, a lot of those songs get kind of re-recorded. Kind of like, why? Yeah, there's <laughs> kind of, it's kind of like no purpose other than money Uh, it's kind of like the led zeppelin releases i'm always like do you really need more money like is there a reason to remaster all of those songs that were already perfect or whatever gang of four did something similar yeah and yeah i mean almost identical to squeeze i think it was like all their their singles from their golden era and 
Yeah, was, I mean, it was fine, but it didn't add anything new to, yeah. to the proceedings. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, Cool for Cats, I think Up the Junction was one yeah. of the first singles of that, but I really like that because I feel like if you're, like, getting a crash course in New Wave, like, there's a lot you could skip over, but I feel like bands like this are way more interesting than, like, going straight into Talking Heads or mm-hmm. something like that when you're getting into the genre. And so I feel like Up the Junction and The Knack and, like, Slightly Drunk and Cool for Cats, I would say... That's great. Yeah. yeah. We're like the ones um, that stood out. Yeah. And Up the Junction is, I mean, interesting in a lot of ways. It's uh, it's definitely a uh, one of those self-contained story songs yeah. about sort of just like the uh, the beginning, middle, and end of a relationship. And it's, I guess, compositionally, it's, it's interesting in that it's just one part just played in different keys to sort of... Yeah. I don't know, mirror the rising and falling action in the story. And I think that's kind of like we were saying is is an example of like what became their signature thing because a lot of these songs were literally like three chord songs. But it's like the fact that they're telling a story that's self-contained within a three minute, you know, whatever. So it's like is a very unique way of going about writing to where it's not like some repeating verse and chorus kind of like whatever song it's still very unique the knack is an example of the sort of the uh kitschiness yeah you're talking for sure. about yeah and i think that's the one i remember like driving around when i was first kind of starting research for this one and like listening to that and like repeating that song and being like this is like these lyrics are insane like who would put this in a song it's like so funny it's super kitschy but i love it yeah, it's like, like adorably catchy. foreboding yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, but I feel like you were saying you listened to Cool for Cats as, like, a kid. I feel like this is mm-hmm. totally, like, kind of a childish, like, not child. I don't know, not in a bad way, but, like, a childish kind of record. Like, it has this really, like, youthfulness to it and, like, the lyrics and stuff. It's, like, really fun. Absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, it works on on several levels. I guess, like, any, like, a lot of a lot of great art. I mean, a parallel I can think of from growing up, like, something that uh, might be, like, uh, reaching here, but that uh, that also had a new wave connection was um, the the TV show Rugrats, which yeah. I I appreciated on, yeah. on one level, and that my parents could appreciate. It's like yeah, for them for too. Sure. Which that's funny. This is the second Rugrats mention on this podcast because Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo did the theme song for that. So it's awful. that's what I'm so getting cool. at. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, but that is funny. Um, because I was talking about that too. That was like you said, Cool for Cats was one of your first records um squeeze being your first live show ever yeah yeah i mean squeeze is my parents jam it was like just yeah. like they're kind of a band that had always been a mainstay for them like um being my mom specifically like new waivers in la and um <laughs> in the late 70s early 80s and uh you know kind of tuned out for a while when i was around but they still had you know, they're tapes, and that's yeah. uh, what what we would jam in the in the car. And I think Cool for Cats, I don't know how it, I mean, it found its way to me, but I think it was just kind of so the artwork, uh, I guess, kind of uh, what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, it is. Like, it's it's going to pop for, like, accessible. a little kid. Yeah, yeah, it's, like, this purple, like, fun, <laughs> like, pop art, like, funny, like, 80s font, you know, well, I guess late 70s, but, like, super, like, new wave, yeah, (laughs) so it is just, like, a fun record, and I feel like that's what you're saying, like, when your parents have kids, they could keep up with music, but they have those, like, main scenes, and that's, like, even on a, I guess, more mainstream level, like, Bob Dylan, for me, like, my parents definitely weren't into 
new wave or anything cool but uh like bob dylan was like my first record of all time was free villain bob dylan and so that's like kind of the same thing where you listen to it as a kid and you like it for one reason and then you get older and it kind of reveals its wisdom and pieces and like you understand different parts about art and uh i mean that's with a lot of bands but um i feel like cool for cats is kind of a record like that um and that's definitely when i first listened to it when i was getting into new wave i kind of appreciate for its sound and then i kind of appreciated the pop aspect of it when i re-listened to it slightly drunk uh not a single but definitely a standout yeah to me. i've had it i've heard sure. it described as beatles on speed nice um, yeah I, I i definitely would actually just describe squeeze as that like in some like some of their music like it definitely sounds like the beatles on speed that's a great description and i guess that's also something that's i mean defined and also to a degree dogged uh tilbrook and differed over the years is just I mean, the UK press, if you know anything about them, they like to make bold, over-the-top declarations. About, yeah. I mean, they just kind of uh, <laughs> yeah, get excited about uh, being the ones to break something, anything. Yeah. And uh, um, so, I mean, just on looks and sound alone, just like a couple pop, pure pop people, uh, yeah, two-songwriter band, um, they're gonna get the Lennon McCartney uh, next Lennon yeah. McCartney comparison, and it's not something that they ever asked for. Yeah, I don't think. And it's so not either. totally it's not unearned either, yeah, but it kind of takes away from their own accomplishments. Yeah, it's not out of bounds, but I don't yeah. think that's what they were going for. I mean, at that point, Lennon and McCartney had barely finished doing the Beatles, so it's like I I really don't think that's um, the sound they were going for. But I get that, like. Like with everything, when people are writing about a band, you have to compare it to something populist for people to understand it, I guess. Um, or in this case, to sell magazines. To sell it, yeah. But the Lennon and McCartney thing is kind of a stretch, I feel like. But I, I get the comparison being a UK pop band. I just don't think they were setting out to do anything in particular. I think they're just figuring out who yeah. they were. Especially this, I mean, they're, like, it's easy to forget, but... Um, I mean, one, just how prolific, like, every band of prominence was back then. It was, like, a record a year, and that was just, like, how it was done. Um, but, like, these guys were, like, 21, 22. Yeah, they were really young. Um, and that is a good point to make. I actually, like, wrote a note about that, is that they put out a ton of records. Like, like this band over the years, like, even the beginning, it literally was, like, one record a year. And that's just because that's how the industry worked. Yeah. And, like, it was, like, record a record, sell a record, sell physical copies, like, whatever. And now we have streaming and you have to sell a single and radio works so much differently post-1996. Um you know, because of the commercialization and, like, monopoly of media and all that. But it really is interesting, and I think that's why I always love this kind of era of bands, because their work ethic is crazy. Like, they're putting out a record a year They're and shooting from it. the hip. Like, there's no time to think. So yeah. they're just, like, sort of evolving creatively Yeah, as they go speed. without realizing it. Yeah. Which is the beauty of it, because I think when you have too much time to, like, think about what you're doing you're like purposely being like oh we have to reinvent and brand and i think that's a big thing today with bands is like sometimes stuff feels so commercialized even if it's like an independent record or artist and 
there's authenticity there, there's creativity there, but it's definitely everything is branded. And I get it, like, everything anyone does has to be. But here, they're like, oh, well, we're making a record, and then they just make a record, and they evolve naturally as people do as creatives. And I imagine just the set list. I mean, like, other bands that come to mind, think of this era for me, or uh, Elvis Costello and the Attractions. And, yeah. Uh, Which and is then, a big um, influence here. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I mean, they're like peers. Yeah. Record. Contemporaries. Yeah. Even, even worked together at various points. But yeah. um, also uh, Talking Heads and, yeah. and Who Screwed You over here in the States. Yeah, yeah um, for sure. Yeah, just like 78, 84 uh, yeah. Golden. For sure, which is kind of funny. I've been getting back into, I always, I mean, proto-punk is like always my favorite or like new wave, whatever, but I just read The Rules of Attraction by Brett Easton Ellis, so he talks about all, he's like talked about Husker Duo and uh, Squeeze in the book, and I was like, oh, like full circle, like how funny, like I've been like researching this, and I, like the book I'm reading is talking about this, Um, so I like had made a playlist of all the songs he mentioned in that book, and like um, notice a lot of comparisons to this band, which like was to hear really that interesting. Playlist. Yeah, that's tight. So, 1980, they put out Argy Bargy, and Paul Carrick from Roxy Music joined. Okay. Pulling Muscles from Michelle is the most prominent song from this, and was like a big hit for them in the UK, and kind of made it in the US. And I, I think that's a great song if you're gonna get into this band. That's definitely one of their most commercially successful. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because it's like. I think they described it as, like, a stone ditty that they wrote. Like, it doesn't make sense. They were just, like, messing around. And mm-hmm. it's, like, a really good song, though. Like, it's, it's like, a good one, you know? What do you feel about this? Well, song? I remember it's just, it's kind of funny. Um, like, I heard Cool for Cats so many times before uh, ever hearing anything, anything else by else them. Like, and yeah. I think we were talking about this when we first met about, like getting into a band before you've really gotten into music and how, yeah, how it's that, like excuse your perspective on music yeah and the band. it's yeah. a mind-blowing concept <laughs> that is. they actually have more albums yeah because you don't think about that one. when you're a kid you're like oh this is like a you don't know what art you don't know about careers you don't think about bands you know like whatever no. and it, you don't it's even funny. Think, yeah, you don't think about like these songs coming from humans yeah yeah it's just like something you hear and you enjoy and you don't think further on it and that innocence really allows you to like enjoy and have a really interesting perspective on music but yeah, yeah. so to go back and hear other work by artists you heard when you were a kid later is like the funniest thing to me because like even as an adult i'll do that like pick up you know, who like your rhythmics or something where I heard one or two songs every, you know, my mom played like Sweet Dreams every day of my life. And then to be like, oh, wow, Annie Lennox like did this and like they have other songs together. Like that's never thought about yeah. it. Um, but yeah, so Argy Bargy. Um, I, th- I feel like uh, this one is uh, definitely maybe a little more streamlined or like a little more up tempo in general. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the Farfisa organ is a major player. On, on this record, you can also heard on like the attractions and countless other stuff. Yeah, from this time, um, this one and the next one, East Side Story, uh, the song, the track listings kind of bleed together yeah, for me. Yeah, for sure. Um, because also, I mean, we'll get to this, but all of these albums plus the fifth one, Sweet Sweets from a Stranger, the singles are all collected on the uh, singles forty fives and under. Yeah. comp. Yeah. which a lot of people say you could just like buy that. Listen and to that. Be and done with squeeze yeah. and yeah, which yeah, yes it. and no, yes and it's no. It's a good way to like get yeah. into it and like and they're all, all the high points. They're all bangers, yeah, but um, they are. <laughs> but Argy Bargy, um, yeah. 
great energetic fun album and this is like once again like cool for cats is like where they're getting into that sound and this is like oh hey like we know what we're doing we yeah. evolved and like whether intentionally or not um that one is a good one now in 1981 so this is like next year they literally put out five records in a row whatever east side story comes out 1981 and it's produced by elvis costello and i think um after i've listened to like the playlist you made and kind of listening to like vaguely everything in order all the records like kind of in passing as i was driving or cleaning my house or whatever i think east side story is like kind of my favorite record by them like i really like it and that's like the one i've revisited and the song specifically I want to say either Is That Love mm-hmm. or Messed Around, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I think those are my favorite. And um, I think it's interesting because Elvis Costello influence is really here. And even more so than their first record, you kind of get that, like, Kinks and Glenn Miller yeah. sound. It almost sounds like a British pop version of, like, Roy Orbison or something totally. on some of these. Yeah. 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 I mean, Labeled with Love is, like, straight up, like, a country song. Yeah, um, which I love. Oh, my God. Because it's, like, pop. I don't know. I feel like country is a better basis for kind of, like, any sound you're going for than, like, classic rock, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, I love country. I write about country. But, like, as far as pop stuff, like, the country structure of that, like, Labeled with Love, like, is kind of a country song and i love like i always joke that my favorite genre is like country that isn't country or something but like that's i would include that in that like it really is like super influence on that but oh man i love this record it's like so good and jules holland like kills it every single song on the keyboard and organ on this one Mm -hmm. it's like so interesting yeah i guess and and i i could see you're saying with the costello influence that he's like i mean such a musical omnivore chameleon like type yeah, type guy and exactly. so they really like the palette def- after doing sort of a straight up like new wave record this one really uh for just being a year later uh i don't know expands the palette yeah and that's the crazy thing that's like um i was listening to an interview with like dave cobb and jason isbell and stuff today and they talked about obviously the beatles which whatever your opinion is, they did cover all the stuff, you know, so quickly, like whatever. And I think this band did the same thing. Like, like you have to keep in context listening, uh, just what we're talking about now, keeping context that like, this literally is like, once again, like year after year, they're putting out a record. And so East Side Story compared to the other ones, like just blew my mind. And that's why I think it's my favorite. Cause I was like, they changed their sound so much. And it's like, you know, three years later, like that's crazy. Yeah, actually, the first track on that is almost kind of a ruse, and that like it sounds like something from the previous record. Yeah, like, just and like so a... it kind of flows effortlessly, which is kind of the funny thing. When I listened to it in order, there wasn't like a definite beginning or end. Maybe that's why me. I link those two records. Yeah. Maybe in quintessence, that first track is the uh, the bridge. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, just like yeah, another super fast pop song. East Side Story also contains "Tempted." And Tempted um, is arguably, I mean, I don't know if, like, measure it in uh, just, like, its chart performance or what, or just its, like, cultural significance, but it's probably their biggest hit. Yeah. And Um, the, like, cruel irony is that it's not sung by either of the, either of the two key guys, Difford or Tilbrook, it's this guy, Paul Carrick, who uh, joined one album prior yeah yeah he joined um, in 1980 who was with roxy music and then later other 
bands, which is, it's always irony. That's kind of how, like, Whip It being Devo's biggest hit is, like, their, like, song making fun of popular music kind of thing. So it kind of does suck that their biggest hit is, like, not sung by either of them when their quintessential sound is, like, them singing together. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of Yeah, it's just funny. I mean, it's... Um, as it goes with cult bands, they kind of, like, get, you know, looked over for stuff like that. But yeah, Tempted by the Fruit of Another probably rings a bell if you've ever listened to uh, 80s flashback yeah, uh, yeah, I feel like session that's on the radio. That is one people would recognize because that is like still... That and Pulling Muscles, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so and then the fifth one... Are we done with East Side Story? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's all I have to say. That's just also a great. The, just the the title is also I know, great. It's uh, so just good. like a shout out to yeah. their uh, Southeast London yeah. origins, which kind of goes back into the working class, like kind of UK theme here, um, which I do like. Yeah, Piccadilly, that. another good one off yeah. that record. Yeah, um, yeah, so many story songs. Sweets from a Stranger is one. The fifth album is, I think, maybe the to me the first misstep or like where the the winning streak might have ended um i mean I, I there was one huge hit off it black coffee in bed which is kind of another kind of weird one it's yeah, like a, yeah like a six and a half minute uh kind of la- lazy not a dirge but uh i kind of like that song though mm-hmm. in a weird way like that's i'm not like, bagging on no, it no no yeah but yeah. i i feel like that's like a a song that like on its own mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. I don't know how I would feel or within the context of that album I don't like just dig it all, you know, that album together. I don't not like it, but that song I feel like is kind of a standalone um because it is just really weird and directionless kind of and, and it's interesting. And that sort of maybe I mean mirrors where the band was at at that time i mean yeah because this is right before they break up mm-hmm. um they do do that record yeah i don't know that's what i kind of love when talking about the history of like any band is you really can see the strain just any like the relationship and synergy of a band is always going to be reflected in their sound at that time and so that is like one thing about this record if you're interested in like obviously this podcast and like going through and listening you do see like their tense there's like members leaving the band like Paul Carrick kind of causes tension with that hit and stuff Possibly, or not yeah. like not like I guess not him as a person but just the fact that they're like kind of moving away from the sound and all that um it's super reflected yeah. in that and maybe yeah. even the times are moving away from that sound yeah and for sure because you're getting into the mid 80s now and that's like where new wave all the best new wave kind of happened a little before that mm-hmm. which new wave, you know yeah. like at that point it's kind of like a genre it's not like um the beginnings of it anymore or like people creating a new sound it's kind of like going off of what's already yeah. been done which it's is a little bit bad, like a band without a country or yeah yeah like for sure so after that they break up and differed in tilbrook are still friends and do like this joint record, which I feel like you could like talk more <laughs> on than I could. Um, it's it's a good record. It's more like pop and a little folky to me. Mm-hmm. It's a record that definitely sounds like the the way the sleeve looks. Um, it's like <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I, I do my best to describe it, but um, they're like in a abandoned house on the beach in like just like cold ass beach in England somewhere I'm wearing like the like hair is all uh like fluffy and uh 
like blowing Real in the 80s, wind, yeah. super eighties, and like we're like wearing trench coats and <laughs> very UK, <laughs> like, very eighties, very on very brand. like yeah, <laughs> serious artiste, but they just end up looking silly, and yeah, it's definitely like. It's trying to. It's it's the first of many records I think are a, sort of like a square peg trying to fit in the round hole of uh, what's popular. Yet their sort of pop instincts still save it from yeah. being totally embarrassing. Like, there's Which still is kind a few of like songs the irony of legit. the whole band. It's like they're a great pop band. They are pop by nature, but then like after I guess 1985 onward, they like literally or. A little before that, they struggle to like stay quote unquote popular or popular, or maybe overly the concern is. themselves with true, it. or maybe try to overcompensate. But they are like such good pop artists by definition of like what a good pop song is, which I think is like easily understandable lyrics or like telling a story and like a catchy hook and like good songwriting and like only a few chords, not like too much noise going on, which love noise bands love like crazy sounds and all that weird stuff but like as far as pop music that's what they did that's what made them great so the solo record or duo solo record whatever is is different in tilbrick it's called simply yeah you can get it for like 25 cents anywhere (laughs) this is (laughs) on any format yeah you can find Actually, I mean, yeah, I don't know how it is now, but for a long time before the uh, like so-called vinyl revival, this was a band that you could generally count on and had a good used record store getting all the essentials for like 10 bucks. Yeah, and that's awesome. That's another good thing that makes a good pop band. Like you should be able to like, it should be accessible. And I love like, that's good. And this is a band I feel like you could, um, if you want to get into them, it's still definitely like a cult band, but like you get into this band as like a young person getting into music and like you could like hear a lot of sounds that lead you to other stuff. Like you could go talking heads to, you know, like we were saying Roy Orbison, like you could find a lot of classic influence here uh, from this kind of newer sound, which I think is interesting. And then when you get in their later stuff, they get into weirder stuff kind of based off of them. But yeah, I feel like it is accessible, and this record is kind of, like, pretty popular within within that genre. Yeah. Um, yeah, because at this point, they had a following, too. So even nowadays, people that were into them, like, would have bought this record or still do. Um, as far as the next phase, I mean, I think it's kind of this, it's worth noting that there were, like, a lot of UK bands, um, as far as I, I know, just significantly more successful commercially in the UK than they ever were over here. And part of that, like them, like the jam and like other certain bands, the knock on them is like, they're too British for mainstream acceptance in America. Um, like the, like, which to me is America's problem and not their problem. Sure, yeah. But like we're not going to take the time yeah. and decode these lyrics it's, that are really is, not too yeah, it's crazy not if hard, you just think yeah, about it. Exactly. It's just kind of like euphemisms and uh, idioms and stuff yeah. like that. Which is and That's great whole, stuff to know. Yeah, which is like kind of the glory of Chris's like songwriting is that it is full of these like funny idioms that are kind of like made up or whatever and like uniquely British but I think that's a big problem with like kind of American radio music is there's a beauty to it like Americana as a canon being like so like consistent but then also that like it's still today people are like oh well I don't get it it's British or whatever and it's like it's not that much of a cultural bridge you know like it's just kind of uniquely its own speaking of did you have any favorite one-liners 
that jumped out at you? Oh man, I wish I I need I feel like I need to re-listen and think about that. I feel like the biggest ones would be in Cool for Cats. Yeah. I, sh- I should have taken notes on that because now I can't think. About oh no, it, I mean but, I have years of listening um, on you. But, what are your? Uh, but my my favorite one is from that, and that's uh, on seeing my reflection. I'm looking slightly rough, which is to say I look like shit. Yeah, yeah. It's just like <laughs> yeah, it's like this kind of like poetically Man. coded way of saying like really basic things, which all about that's like the you know kind of or best like song uh, on the first song on that record, slap and tickle. Um, not cool for cats. Uh, that record. Uh, you have you have to throw the stone to get the pool to ripple. Like you, yeah. no one's gonna do it for you. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's good, you know, and make that's it like happen on your own. Oh yeah. Oh man, such good songwriting. Really good, like catchy stuff. I love that. And it's like it is a little kitschy, like, and it's not quite corny, but like it's like it's there. And I, I really, there's just not not another band like them for that reason for stuff like that. Which I dig. So, did you listen to Cozy Fan Tutti Fruity yeah, at all? Yeah, I did. Thoughts? Um, it's different. So, this is like after their breakup and they've replaced quite a bit of the members. So, this came out in 1985. So, keep that for context. You're like in the 80s here. I mean, it's it's uh, it's funny after going for the, the pop jugular on the Difford and Tilbrook album, this is the immediately next thing. And the first track on that, which I put on your playlist, is uh, Big Bang, which is probably the most, like, inscrutable, like, just, like, I mean, squeeze at their most experimental. Yeah, yeah, like, I have noisy. no idea what they're even going like for. Of, but like, The biggest, <laughs> like, way I would describe this record is just layered. And it is actually so layered that they had to have, they recorded, like, two keyboards over each other on every song on this, and they couldn't replicate what they had done live. So they were kind of in a scramble when they had to go on tour. So they get Jules, like, 17-year-old brother on stage with a keyboard to play alongside him because they were like, there's no way we can replicate this sound without adding members to the band. And I think that's like so funny because they were like, "What have we done? Like we've made this weird sound, and now we like don't know how to." That's like, funny. Keep on I didn't that. know that. Yeah, and so they have this like seventeen-year-old <laughs> kid come on tour and like play keyboard weird noises in the organ and keyboard to like keep up with what they've like created. Needless to say, this record wasn't a hit, but <laughs> in, the, the, in the popular scale, no. Yet um, I dig it though. It's experimental. Yet the next one was. Which I guess it is kind of their transitional thing. And it's also worth noting, so, like, they put up the... So, East Side Stories 1981, which is, like, their last good one, I think, before Babylon and on. And then 1985 is Cosi Fan Tutti Fruity. And so, during their breakup, the reason they kind of break up is Jules Holland gets recruited for a TV show on BBC called later dot 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 with jules holland which like he still um, hosts to this yeah, day yeah to I this think. day he has it it's like this incredibly long-running really interesting kind of review show and the funny thing another like full circle thing is so um i do uh like a radio show and so i had to put this interview on it the other week with dave rawlings and julian welch talking about playing at the ryman and so they played at the ryman like years ago for jules holland's tv show and they were talking about that tv show was their breakout in the uk like sold out records in the uk because they were on jules holland's tv show and i was like that's so funny so that tv show actually did give like it still does kind of gave breakout exposure for like undeveloped or like up-and-coming artists in a lot of genres and it was filmed in america uk wherever he was um so it's kind of interesting that he 
he is such a good player that I feel like he kind of did have this eye to, like, find other people. I could be wrong, but I also feel like maybe at some point, like, way ahead in the timeline, his brother did take over on... He um, probably he is, did, yeah. yeah I should probably look for that a while. Up. Um, but yeah, because um, his brother—that's how we got started. Was in nineteen five, like going on tour with them. So it's kind of funny that they did like give this kid a career because they like needed a keyboardist. Which I guess because they it made goes. an album that was impossible to yeah, play. Yeah, they were like, "Oh no, <laughs> what have we done?" And I have to fix it. So, so yeah, I think by now, like now in '88, we're down to three original members. Yeah, Gifford and Tilbrook, and then the, the drummer, uh, yeah. Gilson Levis. Yeah, because they've switched yeah. out like three or four bassists at this point. I didn't even like keep note at that point because yeah. it was like so many. So they put out Babylon and on in 1987, and then they go into these like compilation records. And is this where the 45 one is released, or is that a little later? Um, no, that was that was during the initial breakup. Okay. I think. Like, okay. Yeah. So that was actually before. Okay. Yeah. But Babylon and on was uh, strangely, I still don't even like. It's still kind of inexplicable to me. But it was their big, their like long-awaited U.S. breakout record. Yeah, and I think that's one that just kind of had to come with time. And that's, to me, that's the only reasonable, I guess, explanation is that it was just that they were at this point in their career. Um, after they did this weird experimental record, they were at this point in their career where they made this successful pop record just because they had enough exposure overseas. Like, it took a decade for America to be like, oh, there's this band happening, whatever, because America seems to be a little late to a yeah. lot of trends. Even, like, genres adopting other genres, it's always, like, five or ten years later. It's, like, cool. But in a way, that kind of, like, kept their legacy going mm-hmm. because they're it kind of burning out. Time, yeah, it sure. definitely did buy them time to continue their career. Yeah. Uh, There's some solid songs I like off that. Hourglass is a, uh, was the biggest hit, with, which is just, like, singing, like, a million words a minute. Yeah. Um, and there's, like, a accompanying video that was, like, a also, just very if it's late '80s time, like Salvador Dali inspired uh, yeah, video. Yeah, I don't know if you pulled that. Which I really, um, <laughs> that's really interesting because I'm really into like I don't know. This is also an era where like just kind of that kind of like absurd art and like Dada and like all like weird impressionism and whatever. And then like you see that in music, like relatively, you know, not like exact totally. years, but uh, that is kind of funny to see that reflected. And they did kind of branch off visually just because they had the commercial platform to do so here. The uh, singles collection didn't come out around this time, but you know what did was a live album. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was like uh, right after uh, cool. Babylon and Om. Was yeah. Album. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Around and about that one's called. And it's, I think it actually it sort of speaks to the thing that we have been talking about that like strip away all any and all like kind of questionable production choices and the songs stand together. Yeah, which is I think eighties music in general. You yeah, have to yeah. like you have to like be like okay, it was the eighties, so this is why it sounds like that. If you take away this weird production, oh wow, good song. So you gotta take it with a grain of salt. So the live one is interesting, though, because you do get kind of the evolution there, as with any live album mm-hmm. you're ever going to listen to. But I'm, like, a huge live album advocate, Are you know? You? Like, I, yeah, like, I feel like when I was first getting into music, that was, like, what drew me in. That was, like, listening to artists' live albums, whether it be Velvet Underground, Grateful Dead, to, like, really weird, random bands. So I really dug this live album because you do see, like, kind of the evolution because you can go back and watch videos from them playing when they were 20-whatever to, like, now. 
you kind of get to take away that production or any like forethought you have about the band and you get this really like clear pure like example of their music in the live setting and i love that 1989 they put out this record called frank uh which gets re-released later in the 90s as like a remastered deluxe whatever edition um as a lot of their later stuff did interestingly um like sweets from a stranger gets put back out in 2007 and all this stuff this one is <laughs> this one's my uh, personal favorite of like uh i guess the post golden era okay, stuff yeah. it's uh it's first of their late 80s output that doesn't necessarily sound like that's where it comes from. Like, yeah. it's, a, it's a, for lack of a better term, it's a back-to-the-source kind of Which, rock record. Yeah. And I feel like they do, because they, they have enough commercial success to kind of go back to that original sound here. Yeah, and I, I just think, yeah, something about, I feel like it's the sound of them just trusting their gut and settling into middle age and, like, being cool with that. And, and writing some of, like, their most poignant material... I think the two songs that kick off the A and B sides respectively are If It's Love and Love Circles. Not to be confused with Is That Love, yeah, which we were talking about is, earlier. Yeah, earlier. And I think both of those yeah. are on the live album. Yeah, they are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little confusing. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah they, they are nothing if not consistent uh, thematically. Just, yeah, just really, uh, I don't know, poetic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, yeah. I do like this record. It's cool. I'm good. glad to yeah, hear. Yeah. Um, uh, this is another track on that can of worms, just like about divorce or just like telling kids, make, helping your kids understand what's going on. Yeah. It's like, whoa. Obviously, like with any band, as they mature, so is their subject material. So they're not singing about cats, even though yeah. it's a metaphor. They're singing yeah, about like, like divorce and, and things, um, which is like wow it's like okay like they have the serious material and they're like adults now and it's funny that they're singing about the subject matter when this record is their most like you were saying post golden era like most relatable back to their early sound mm-hmm. as like teenagers or like you know the, those like three lula reed the kinks and uh glenn miller like influence there and this record was also a complete flop commercially yeah. and i'm sure that they're yeah i don't know as a lot of reasons. deeper content goes but yeah. um it's also like uh, it's 1989 it's like you know 1989 1990 like that's a new era of music yeah. where things are changing in the industry in radio and like sound and so the whole uk to us transfer is also a little lost there I think. yeah it kind of i think just fell through the cracks yeah um, but now i i love that one and uh it's it cool seems to give like it if it had been out. put out 10 years earlier or something it would be this like super classic record sure or even five yeah li- literally it just seems like a little out of place with time just because the 90s like for me there's just this oversaturation and like i don't like a lot of 90s music and you lose a lot of stuff that like was really good or is maybe that's why these bands are like cult bands or cult classics or like indie records because like they were good records but just like you can't compare to what was playing on the radio then like they weren't you know whatever i think frank also has a special place in my heart just because it's when i saw them for the first time as a kid yeah um, talk on that about tour. that that was your first um, concert it was my first concert yeah, that's I, awesome. I like to say i remember <laughs> a lot about it i don't really yeah but um i remember i was there I, uh, it was uh i was with my family in new york um winter of 1989 so i guess they still had enough clout to 
to book Madison Square Garden. But Which sir, says oh, something. There's something there. Sure. To be said, yeah. Certainly not enough at that point to come anywhere close to filling it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I think at that point, um, I think my, my parents had teamed back in and they had that tape and uh, we uh, we were all super into it and... And I just remember specifically just like watching that song, uh, If It's Love, from my dad's shoulders. That's nice. um, <laughs> a fond memory up there with uh, watching the Dodgers win the 1988 World Series with him the year, a year prior. <laughs> but uh, I digress. Um, yeah, that, I, I feel like that closes the book on an era for them, too. I think so, for yeah. sure. Because, I don't know, I really like that record. Now I want to revisit it now that... I don't know, I've heard your, like, sentimental look on it, but I do, it is, like, a sentimental record just by default. But after this, everything they put out is okay, or it's, like, a re-release like or too middle-aged, yeah. a lot of it. Yeah, it's, it's very like... much... But the 90s were an interesting era for them because they still were a band, they were still touring, they definitely weren't as big as they were, but they had people like Amy Mann come in and sing uh, harmonies and like tour with them and like Bruce Hornsby was like their session keyboardist so Jules Holland left permanently at this point and so instead of like replacing him because they couldn't really replace you know him like because he was so important in the band and like especially like I was saying on my favorite record like he really like synthesized the whole sound that I dug from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had different session keyboardists. He's kind of a secret weapon. Huh? He is. Like, and I feel like in every band, there's like someone who's yeah, totally the ace underrated. In the hole, I like to call him. And yeah. he really is. Like, he really brings that like kind of 50s pop sound that like makes it so classic and so lovable to yeah. the records. Yeah, he's got a great, he's got some great moments on Frank too. Uh, I mean, they're kind of like almost like comic relief uh, from the heavier material we were talking about. Yeah, like, yeah, there's like exactly. his New Orleans song, Dr. Yeah. Jazz, which is, yeah. is silly, but it's fun. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and I like that too. That's kind of yeah. like the thing where it's like country songs that aren't country. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the same thing because I, I mean, I grew up like super close to New Orleans. Yeah. So that's yeah. kind of the that's whole right. basis for my like taste in music. That was kind of like on a tangent like I saw like a blues artist weekend and was like oh that's why I'm a music journalist like I remembered and so it's kind of funny to see like stuff that's like a New Orleans jazz song that isn't yeah. uh, but it kind of is it's kind of a play on that and I, I do like that song because it's kind of funny like it, it reminds me to me that's nostalgic because it like reminds me of the other stuff I used so to you grew up to. sort of mid, uh, midway between New Orleans and Memphis or closer to yeah New yeah I'm from like Jackson and then so like I definitely just like Delta Blues and jazz is like you know where I kind of that was like nice. the live music I was seeing and uh so I feel like that that gives me an interesting perspective on music I feel like I'm going on a tangent but no I, 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 I mean it definitely I, I don't know I feel like a lot of other people grew up either especially in Nashville everyone's like oh my parents were in the music industry like I listen to all this cool music yeah. and I'm like my parents listen to like country radio or, but I did like get to see BB King live and like stuff like that so but the, the, like, the 90s mean nothing to you is is interesting yeah, yeah. I, well, I also, yeah, I wasn't really alive for, I have no memory of, like, most of the 90s, because I wasn't born until 96. I have this super old perspective on music, so just because I grew up listening to, like, old guys playing some steel guitar or something, um, so I feel like when I go back and listen to bands like this, like Squeeze or whatever, I do feel like I can pull from, see that kind of influence, like, you know, comparing to, like, older songwriters or pop artists or something, um, which is kind of interesting. But the 90s for them was, 
you know, they just weren't, like, commercially successful up there just because, like, they weren't with what was popular. And well, it's that's like, fine. I mean, post, it happened to a lot of people. Post-Nirvana, I just, like, forget about really? it. Really? Yeah. 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 I mean, it just kind of wrecked, like, a lot of people's trajectory to, like, have this, like, grunge thing. And I hate that because, like, that's, like, a thing I, um... I feel like I, like, joke around with friends a lot or talk about a lot, but, um like good bands that inspired like just bad bands and that's to me happened a lot in the oh 90s. yeah it's like people were like oh nirvana and it's like i respect nirvana but then they made just like garbage music yeah. from that and that's what became popular and it like made a lot of artists get lost out on and like you know that just weren't like given the attention they deserved during that time and and maybe it's not fair to say that about squeeze because they definitely had their time in the sun and like mm-hmm. their highlight whatever and like at this point like we said we're getting a little middle-aged but yeah like the 90s just kind of like ruined things for a lot of cool bands because they couldn't compete with this like post-grunge or sound. just fo- yeah forced them to scale it way back i mean or yeah. it probably became more like work and yeah and yeah you can, like hear, you can hear that yeah. in some of this it made it like a out, grueling but... sound or a grueling effort that like turned that into a sound i mean like all of their stuff not to say that there's any album that is uh is worthless but um but yeah i mean I guess to their credit, they did not try and conform to yeah. the uh, the sound of the time this time around. Yeah. But uh, I guess yeah. Shout out to the song "Some Fantastic Place" off the album of the same name from '93, and then uh, "Letting Go" off of "Play" from 1991. If only because if you ever go see Glenn Tilbrick solo, those are songs that he considers among his best, nice. and That's and I think it's more like like yeah, lyrically they they mean a lot. So you've seen Glenn Tilbrook, you have? Yeah, a many times, a yeah. few times. Um, I mean, one one show I think I told you about that was like a kind of inadvertent solo show, um, which was I think the first time I went and saw them as uh, being old enough to truly remember it with my uh, squeezed super fan family. <laughs> um, and I, uh, I, ha- I, I gave you the date, but I believe it was in 1999. And yeah, at that point, they did have something new, but... They were playing like casinos and stuff. Like it was, de- yeah. they were definitely on and that, that stage of their by career. Them. And yeah. um, I'm not probably not totally stoked on it, but they're lifers, you know, and yeah. uh, they're pros. But um, we arrived at the show to find out that Difford hadn't made the flight, and um, this was day one of a like a month long tour. And I don't know what ended up happening, but um. They did not cancel the show, and not only that, like, we learned just, I mean, just the enormity of Tilbrook's musical contribution to the band just carrying the weight for two guitarists, and yeah, really... to be able to do that, to, Fine, yeah, all to, of a sudden, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, to really make lemonade out of a situation and give us, like, a show that would probably arguably more memorable than it would have been if things had just gone true. to plan. Yeah, and um, I think that was sort of like where we, I mean, became fans, not just of the band alone, but of him. Like, just, yeah, I mean, his, his guitar playing just blew our minds. And um, yeah, I think there's like a Hendrix cover in there. There's like, just kind of really like electrifying versions of 
like both seminal material and like deep cuts. Nice, and, um, yeah. Which is like all you can ask for. Yeah, you want a little bit of both. So, yeah, we left uh, like great. hoping Difford was okay, but also just stoked on Tilbrick. Then I uh, saw him again, and like a few a few years later, he like went electronica, quote unquote, was was like the buzzword. Okay. Um, he uh, tried his hand at that. Which I feel like is only, only what could happen. Like once you get into the two thousands, like every like every like solo branch of like someone from a band, it was like some kind of electronic project. Which is like yeah. there's some good ones out there. Hey, he's a it, he's a know, dad. He, he likes his gadgets and uh, <laughs> and yeah. um, I mean again, it's just like it's the the, the album, the incomplete Glenn Tilbrick is uh, frankly just like hilarious sounding, but um. Definitely a a pretty lo-fi foray into uh, electronic music, but still, yeah. I mean, it's still just his pop songs. Yeah. Just, just Which in, at the end dressed of the day. up. That, yeah, at the exactly. end of the day, yeah, like Every with an acoustic, single release with an acoustic just, guitar. Yeah. Like these songs are sick. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and so yeah, that was uh, uncovering another side of him. Saw like a uh, I think like maybe a thirtieth anniversary tour of like the, the the golden era early material. Nice. Nice. Um, Which is always interesting to see early stuff played yeah. decades later because it's always going to sound different. It's always still satisfying to hear, though, you know. Super satisfying. I mean, there weren't really any surprises at that one, but it was good seeing Difford and good health, and yeah. um, and I think they really like, uh, you know, put their best foot forward trying to replicate the the old live sound for yeah. those of us who couldn't have been there. Yeah, and I love that. Like I was saying, like I miss the '90s, and I love old yeah. music. So like every time I like see a band, it's obviously like 20 plus years yeah. after their heyday, and I'm like, so it's nice when they do try to like when I saw the Breeders or oh, whatever a few yeah. months ago. Like yeah, I was That's like okay, show. like. But to be able to see bands like that that I like were so important to me like as a teenager or something, but then I'm like, oh, they're all like forty or fifty now. But then like when they try their best life to like make it sound like they're not that old or like like yeah, I mean like down to the sound. clothes if they can still fit into them, yeah. like down yeah. to the gear if they held on to it. Yeah, and it's like really cool because um to be able to see a legacy show and kind of like get that sound and kind of feel like that's as close as you're gonna get to like. Music that was important to you, seeing it live, is always, yeah. always cool. So, yeah, um, that is really good that they did that. And then, yeah, to be able to see, like, oh, they're still going. Like, they're, you know, like, um, that was kind of the breeders. Like, they're sober now. They're, like, actually sound, like, just as good as they did back in the day. And I was like, that's really cool that, you know, they, like, held it together. I didn't see them back in the day, but I think her voice sounds better than it ever has. Yeah, no, I think so. Because it also has, like, very... I feel like Kim Dill and Kathleen Hanna, there's, like, obviously a comparison there, but I saw Kathleen Hanna, and her voice is so, like, two years ago, her voice is so mature now, as it did kind of once they were in La Tigre and stuff, but after she, like, got over her sickness a little bit, and I feel like that's Kim Dill, like, her voice just matured, like, as, like, a person, and then to be able to hear them live, you know, and obviously they've become better players since then, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know, with any legacy band, it's really interesting to hear them play old material you know, years later. Well, they're um, also playing it with a clearer mind, you know. True. Just, oh, yeah. I mean, not sober. not just talking about, yeah. like, sobriety, but also just, like, yeah. Well, I think, like, a lot of bands yeah. break up, like, because over just, like, 
stuff they can't even remember. No, exactly. Which is like in, in life, anything. Yeah, like yeah, friend you know, yeah, exactly. You like break up with a friend, and three years later, you're like, what did we fight about? Like, and you have this clear mind about like who you are as people. And I think bands do that too. So that's really cool that Squeeze like kind of came back and like gave that to the yeah. fans, kind of thing. Yeah, they're still going. You can uh, yeah. still go see them. I haven't in a while, but um, I. Uh, I, I like kind of want to now. Now I'm yeah. like, now that I know all these things about Squeeze, I like want to see them live. Yeah, so that's that's really it for chronological order of things. Are there any other like personal anecdotes that you'd want to talk about, or like Parting fun thoughts. facts or something? Um, I mean, no, it's just like it's kind of fun, like just uh, thinking out loud, like what we we were talking about earlier, how they were a band that when I was a kid that like myself and my elders could enjoy on different levels. Yeah. Um, and now, I mean, I think more than any band, just because they've been in my life longer. Uh, yeah. I mean, since like literally, yeah, before I knew what music was. Like, yeah. Since I was just like a little rug rat myself. Um, like, I feel it is something that I always come back to and I always like understand it a little bit more. And, nice, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm definitely personally like more of a, a sounds guy than a lyrics guy, but like the lyricist that I love, yeah. there's just something I can't put my finger on. It just speaks yeah. to me or it doesn't. Yeah. I remember like going to a, you know, art school, like a, a lot of like, it's funny when you're a freshman in college like, or like icebreakers, whatever that people try to do. And one of the big ones I remember everyone talking about all the time was like, are you lyrics or sound? And like, I feel like I can never decide like because I literally listen to so much like neoclassical and noise but then mm-hmm. I love love like old songwriters and stuff so like that's kind of interesting and I feel like this band I would peg kind of more as lyrically mm-hmm. just right off the bat but I do get the sound thing there for sure well they just like they deliver on the hooks or like they oh, deliver yeah, in both sure. departments sure. and all. I feel like I can never decide if I'm like oh, more sound or lyrics. It takes all True. kinds but yeah, a long live squeeze, I guess. Yeah. And uh, yeah, shout out to my folks, Steve and Elizabeth, uh, for uh, for bringing Cool for Cats into my world. Yeah, you rarely hear someone be like, that's my family's favorite band. So that's like a really unique perspective I feel like you brought to this. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Well, well, thanks yeah. so much for having me. Yeah, Olivia. thanks for really being a on pleasure. the podcast. Yeah. And yeah, you guys should listen to Squeeze. Yeah, I guess that's it. Thank you for listening to Bandsplainer.